Hi, I'm Dale. I'm your substitute teacher for today. Do most of you know I work on the lessons every week with Mark? He, um, occasionally I've exaggerated to you and I've said, I need to set the record straight. I've said, uh, I help Mark with the lessons. Mark doesn't need my help. Um, he, the right way to say it is he allows me to contribute to the lessons. Every week. Sometimes I change F-O-R-M to F-R-O-M because spell check doesn't catch that. And Mark makes that mistake all, all the time, all the time. But I need to tell you, it's one of the joys of my life to work on these wonderful lessons. We have so much fun. And I don't want you to take it for granted that uh, Mark does these lessons every week, how hard they are. I mean, I got to do one all the way through this time. It's hard. It takes a lot of time getting the lesson ready and the PowerPoint and all that kind of stuff. And I should encourage you to pray for Mark during the week when you think of him and pray for him when he's up here and pray for me when I was up, I'm up here. This is, this is hard stuff. And I found a photo that just summarizes what it feels like to uh, substitute for Mark. <laughs> I showed that I showed that to Scott Riling and he said, "Yeah, they, you've you've captured it." There's a map of Malaysia. There's a there's a story in your handout about a time when I was a senior at Baylor and I had the opportunity to go to Malaysia on a mission trip. It was a miracle the way God raised that money. It was it it came out to the exact penny, the money I needed to go on that. And it was a thousand dollars and that's equivalent to $10,000 today. And it was an absolute miracle. And I got so excited because this was the Lord God teaching me at the beginning of my adult life. He's just, it just says, if he said to me, Hearn, you know, this money thing, I got it covered. You don't need to worry about it. Now I know pastor David said, we're not supposed to look back to the past. We're supposed to look to the future, but Sometimes it helps me to look back in the past and see when God was faithful for when you have other troubles later on. I, I, I was curious. I, you know, I've been in this church since 1981 and I know a whole bunch of you. How many people can say for sure that God has helped you through a tough financial time and you know for sure? Raise your hand. You see that? It's not just me. That story about Malaysia, that happened in 1974 and 1975. You know what happened that year? It was the worst year for the stock market since World War II until now. It is. In 1973 was the Arab oil embargo. In 1974, President Nixon resigned in disgrace. In 1975, in April of 1975, that's when we went on the mission trip during spring break. That's when Vietnam was falling. In 1970, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was about 1,000. And in 1980, 10 years later, it was about a thousand. It went nowhere for 10 years. Kind of like today. I came into this business in July of 1985, the financial services business. In 1986, President Reagan passed the Tax Reform Act and it wiped out a whole industry of people who did tax shelters as investments. Who remembers the 80s around Houston, Texas and the oil and gas business? Remember? Remember see-through buildings? Remember foreclosed homes? Remember all that stuff that was going on? In the later 80s, when the first President Bush was around, all the savings and loans in the country went out of business. 3,000 of them. We've had 200 bank failures this year, and we think that's terrible. You know, it's always something. Um, and now we have this giant economic catastrophe. The worst recession since the Depression, it is. 
And it is. And, and folks get kind of scared. And, and, and right now, as we stand here today, things are looking better, aren't they? I mean, the, the signs are everywhere. They really are. I was trained as economists. They are better. But we kind of wonder if it's fake or not. And we're kind of fearful about the future. I had a client in my office Friday. And he said, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I'm getting ready to retire. I'm scared to death about the future. Do you, know, do you think the word fear belongs in a Christian's vocabulary? I don't think so. How many times are we told to fear not in God's word? I don't know what the future holds. Nobody else does either. In economics, the only thing that's certain about economics is uncertainty. When I was at Baylor, we studied a guy. His name was John Kenneth Galbraith, a famous economist. He said, um, this isn't exactly right, but it's close. He said, uh, economic forecasting was invented to make astrology look respectable. And, and so, so we can't count on what they say on CNN or FFN or MSNBC and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know what we can count on? We can count on God's eternal word. And he says a whole bunch about finances. There are 2,300 verses on money and possessions in God's word. There's over 700 directly about money. So we're going to look, start off with the Old Testament. We're going to go through that. We're going to look at a, what I think is a heresy. And then we're going to look at what Paul says about it. The first guy I thought of was Job in the Old Testament. I'm not going to recount the story, but you know, Job had, had a bunch of money, lost it all. At the end, he had a happy ending and he got back twice as much. That's in Genesis. I mean, in, in Job 42. Abraham was a rich dude. He had, he had silver and gold and a whole bunch of other stuff. And he was on the cover of Time magazine. So that's not, that's not too shabby. We've got to go through these quick. Mark told me when I first showed him the lesson, he goes, aren't you going to have 10 minutes left when you finish the Old Testament? So I've got to prove him wrong. Um, Isaac, Isaac had many flocks. He, he was so rich, the Philistines envied him. Jacob was a rich guy. That's showing, that's showing him uh, wrestling with the angel of the Lord. That's called a theophany. Some scholars think that's a Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. He had a lot of money. Joseph and the coat of many colors. Joseph had a rough life. You know, it's not fun being sold into slavery by your brothers and kind of rose up to here it says he was successful and ran Potiphar's household but then he got thrown into jail and trumped up charges and eventually became the prime minister of Egypt King David that scripture Deuteronomy 15 10 that says that's blessing of Israel and that's way before King David but he was the second king of Israel and he certainly got the benefit of that I put that picture up. I couldn't find a good picture of David but I like that one because it had Mr. Spock there on the on the other side and and Bill Gates had nothing on Solomon. Solomon was probably the world's first billionaire. And I put that picture up because I thought it was funny because I couldn't find a good picture of Solomon either, but it's Yul Brenner and Gina Lola Brigida and some movie about, about Solomon. That, that's kidding around, but listen, here's what I want you to pay attention to. This is important for later on. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon's having a dream at Gibeon. And God asked him, I'll give you whatever you want. And so Solomon asks for wisdom and God says, granted, you will have a wise and discerning mind. But what's he go on to say? He says, because you didn't ask for riches and you didn't ask for a long life and you didn't ask for me to take the lives of your enemies, I will not only give you wisdom, but I'll give you the other things as well. Now, with those guys, I just rattled off real quick. Could you get the idea that? The Old Testament is teaching that God's favor 
results in material blessings, it would be wrong to get that idea. The Old Testament certainly doesn't say that. Jeremiah would raise his hand and disagree wholeheartedly. I'd, he had to uh, prophesy about the destruction of Jerusalem. That didn't make him a whole bunch of money. Ezekiel baked his bread over cow manure. That, that wasn't too fun. So where do we get this mistaken idea that God's favor and wealth and prosperity go together? I like that song. That's Steve Taylor's and Louis Miori's Roarse Nightmare, me doing that right there. Steve, because I played it for almost 30 seconds, and you're not supposed to play a song for longer than 10 seconds. And uh, Louis Miori, because he just... If he was here, he'd be shaking his head saying, Hearn, you just played a song by a rock group that also has a song called Sympathy for the Devil. But I made my point, didn't I? You know what Jesus said? Jesus warns his disciples that they are to take up his cross, take up the cross, deny themselves, and follow him. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I believe there's a heresy and it's growing through the church and it's called prosperity theology. And I don't think that's too strong a word because there's a lot true about it. That's a good heresy has a lot of truth in it. I think it's been around forever. It goes all the way back to Job. Job was probably the oldest book in the Bible. Did you know that? It goes back a long, long time. And Job lost everything he had and those three friends that came up and they weren't really friends. Their names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they said, what'd you do wrong? You must have sinned because you used to have all this money and now you don't. And Job remained righteous. And at the end, he got back twice as much. The Pharisees of Paul's day had prosperity theology all throughout. And Paul did too. A, a Pharisee by definition is you obey this set of rules and God will bless and prosper you. Paul was a persecutor of the church. We heard that in David's sermon and he went after him and went after him he held the cloak to while they stoned uh stephen and he could not understand the message of christ jesus wasn't successful jesus said himself the foxes have holes birds have nests the son of man has nowhere to lay his head right later on in church history there was a pope this was uh, there's a million examples i can think of is pope leo the 10th he was trying to raise some money for saint peter's basilica and he got this little smarmy guy named Tetzel to go around and sell indulgences to make money for the church. He did, they did all kinds of stuff. One of the things was they sold little splinters and said, this is part of Jesus' cross. And it ticked off a monk named Martin Luther. And he read in Romans that we are saved by faith. And he tucked up 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And we got the Protestant Reformation out of the deal. I think today's version started in the 1950s. I think it started in tent revivals in the middle part of the country. And it, had, it has various names, and it's kind of wrong to generalize, but the name I heard the most was Seed Faith. The way it's, have you heard that before? The way, the way it is is you, you, plant, you plant a seed, presumably by giving money to whichever preacher is telling you about his ministry, and then it will grow up and harvest, and you'll get back a whole lot more. Um, lately, I've been hearing um, 
you are part of the king's family. You are a child of a king. And so you can ask what you want and he'll give it to you. And when you get that, as long as you give God the credit, then that's okay. In the 80s, we had some scandals. There was two big ones that were on TV and they kind of had a kind of a scandal there and stuff. And so these days, things have kind of toned down a little bit. And it's wrong to generalize and it's wrong to pull quotes out of just one little context and stuff. But I found the, I've read all kinds of things to get ready for this. And I found, there was this big long list of 72 things these people that are called prosperity gospel preachers say, and I made a list of them. These are the worst ones. Being poor is a sin when God promises prosperity. One greater than a lot is equating Jesus with lottery. Some people say it's about peace, joy, and love. No, it's about money. Christians can get anything they want by visualizing it. And the, the one that really tears me up and bugs the tar out of me is that last one. If you're struggling financially, then you have not got the victory. Oh, yeah? I think Job struggled financially for a while, and he stayed righteous, didn't he? I, don't, I, I think these guys think that God is supposed to be our own personal genie. Um, one of the verses I hear a lot is Luke six thirty eight. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you in return. Is that right? Yeah. Absolutely, positively. John 10, 10 is right too. I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I believe that. You know what Rick Warren says about the, you know who Rick Warren is? Okay, wrote The Purpose Driven Life. He said, there's a word for these preachers who teach health and wealth, baloney. He said, he said that our, we do not measure our self-worth by our net worth, that he knows millions of faithful followers of Christ who live in poverty. There's a guy named Alan Branch. He's at Midwestern Baptist Seminary. That's the seminary Scott Rollins finishing up his doctorate at. And he says, prosperity wants the positive, but never tells you about the negative part. It tells you about how blessings will be poured on you, but it doesn't tell you about the part about how persecutions may be poured on you also for following Christ. There's a preacher here in town. It's not the one you're thinking of. No. Nope, nope, nope. It's not the one you're thinking of. And he said, I, I'm not a proponent of saying the Lord's name three times, three times, clicking your heels together and get what you want. But you cannot give what you don't have. And so we need to have some extra to kind of share with each other. I'm, he's called a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not sure that's, I th he sounds right to me. Um, but I would suggest that you don't listen to preachers and you don't listen to me, but you listen to what Paul says. Let's see what Paul says about that. Here's one of them. It's in Philippians 4, 1 and 5 and 7. Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. What does it say after that? Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Didn't say anything about giving you money for a beamer in there. In Romans 6, it says that we are, be, we are to be slaves to righteousness that's paul on the damascus road 
Paul was persecuting Christians. He, he sees a bright light on the road to Damascus. And he is called by the risen Savior to share the gospel with others. He, uh, later on, Paul says, I think David used this in the, in the sermon this morning. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's in Philippians 3, verse 8. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian. He said that the figure of the crucified invalidates all thought that takes success for its standard. So, Paul seems to be making a case for what could be called adversity theology. I mean, he had it rough. In uh, 2 Corinthians, it says, with countless beatings... At the hands of the Jews, I received five times the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was adrift at sea. We're out in the open with cold and exposure. We were thirsty. Sometimes we were hungry. And on top of that, I worry about the churches. So what am I saying? Am I saying we need to chuck everything and go live like Paul and have an adverse life in order to be committed Christians? Of course not. Do you know why Paul was able to put up with all that stuff? Because he was called to do it. And when you're called, God prepares you and strengthens you for what he wants you to do. Do, do some of you know I like William Carey? Do you remember church history back in that day? It was a few years ago. William Carey started the modern mission movement. He, he's an amazing fellow. And uh, he went over to India and he had all kinds of adversity too. But there was another guy named Andrew Fuller. And Andrew Fuller raised the money for William Carey to go on his trip. And I think Andrew Fuller was called just as much as William Carey was. We have different objectives. We have different things that God wants us to do. I was uh, in my reading, I was reading a story about Mother Teresa. And it was, she, it was probably in, it was in getting ready for the Nobel Peace Prize. And a reporter was interviewing her. And he looked around at the squalor that she lived in and worked in and said, uh, I wouldn't do what you do for all the money in the world. And she looked at him and said, I wouldn't either. <laughs> so let's look at Paul's theology on money. And I don't think it involves monopoly. These are real arbitrary. I'm leaving out all kinds of things. Uh, when I first wrote the lesson, Mark said, what are you doing? You're going to teach a 16-week course? And that's, that's what it would need. So here's what I did. At the end of your lesson, I put some other things to review. Uh, the objective of a good Sunday school teacher is to encourage his students to read outside of class on your own and figure it out by yourself. And I'm going to give you some homework. You need to read Philippians chapter 4. Need to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I'm going to write it down. And when Mr. Lanier comes back, he's going to have a pop quiz. Okay? Number one, work hard and take care of your family. 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his family, especially for his own household, he is worse than an unbeliever. We are ordered to take care of our family. There's all kinds of verses on that. In, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, it says, if you don't work, you don't eat. In Titus, it says, our people must learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for their families for the daily necessities. I think Paul's admonition is clear. And I use this verse as my motivation to work hard, take care of the family, 
work hard enough so I have some extra so I can share with others. Paul did not depend on donations for his ministry. He worked. He, was, he studied at the feet of Gamaliel to become a rabbi. He probably started when he was 14 years old. What they used to do back in those days is they would train the rabbis to have a skill that they could make money. Paul's was tent making. He worked for Aquila and Priscilla. That's in Acts chapter 18. Now, he did take up an offering. That's in Acts 24. And that's, but he was taking up the offering for the folks that were in bad shape in Jerusalem. He was trying to tie together the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And he didn't take it for himself. He worked. And he worked hard. That's, that's Aquila and Priscilla's website right there. I think. Really, it is. It's really, it's really cool. When you, on the About Us part, when you click on it, it makes this really cool sound. Click, click, click. And I was clicking around in it, trying to see if I could find something to share with you. And I found they, That's a good company. They keep good records. He was in, it was in, yeah. You know, I knew that guy could be employee month. Here, here's what he said. I got to read this one. I can't remember it. First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands so that your daily life may earn the respect of outsiders. And so you will not be dependent on anybody. That, that, one, that last part got to me a little bit. I got to thinking about that when I was preparing the lesson. Because some people might have a little twinge on that. And they might be thinking something along the lines of, I don't want to be dependent on anybody. I want to take care of my household. But I lost my job and it's hard to find another one in this wicked economy. In uh, October of 1984, I got called up to Dallas, Texas by the big boss. This is a really, I wish I had time to tell you this whole story. It's hilarious. And he said, you and Barney and Wally, those are the other two guys that had come over with me. You and Barney and Wally have increased sales 72% in three years. It's the highest in the nation. Second, Boston's 57%. But we're going to go in a different direction and we don't need you anymore. And I lost my job. Yes. You know what happened to that company? They're out of business now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know it's not Christian, but God's not finished with me yet. Ah. And, Bar- and Barney's a client. Um, I had two job opportunities that were very, listen to this part close. They were very similar to what I was doing, and I thought I had them. And uh, one was here, they were both here in Houston, but one of them I had to go to the interview in Minnesota. And I had the sniffles, and it was snowing up there, and I came back, and I got pneumonia. And I couldn't go on interviews for six weeks. Melissa was three years old. And... It got rough and we got to a month where I couldn't pay the house payment and I was praying, Lord, I don't want to be dependent on anybody. I don't want to borrow money from Carrie's dad. I want to take care of myself. We got up on Sunday. Carrie was making toast, getting ready to go to church. The toaster oven was underneath this plastic spice rack you pull out, had spices in it and it caught on fire. It didn't do a whole lot of damage. It just melted the plastic in the spice rack and it sent smoke all over the house. So Carrie kept saying, call the insurance guy, call the insurance guy, call the insurance guy. No, no, no. You know, it's like $50. The the spice rack and the toaster oven together is maybe $50 and the deductible is $200 and that won't be any due. And she insisted and so we did. And the guy came on Tuesday. And she she said rightly, "Ah, he might think of things you didn't think of and maybe it'll get more than deductible. So he looked around and said, ah, you got to clean the drapes right there and you got to clean the carpet and you got to clean the, 
couch and stuff like that. And he wrote us a check right there. We didn't have to wait for it. And we looked at it. Isn't that cool? And we looked up, we looked at the couch. I really did do this. I looked at the couch and went, ah, we don't need to clean that. And we, we can go to the grocery store and rent one of those machines and clean the carpet with. And I really did do this. That's how dorky I was. I really did do this. I prayed and I said, Lord, thank you for providing the money for the mortgage this month. I wouldn't have done it that way, Lord. Almost burning my house down. I would have given me a job. And I really wish I had time to tell you the whole story in detail. But, you know, look, you know, looking back on it, looking back on it, that set in motion a series of events to give me the faith to step out into a job that wasn't like the one I used to have. And it's the one I have now. And I own my own business. And if somebody would take care of my family, I would do what I do for free. I love it. And God has blessed us beyond what I ever thought possible. I could tell that story in a prosperity gospel um, meeting, I guess. You know what the catch is to that? that? That was my story and that was God's plan for my life. And I don't know what he has in the future. It may not be that way for you. You may, you may have to lose your house. Something else might happen. But what happened? What's it say? What's it also say in Philippians? Don't all things work together for good to those who are called, who love God and are called according to his purpose? You know what you might have to do in, in your situation? This is the second one. You might have to be content with what you have. Philippians 4, verse 12. I, Paul says, I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to have food. I know the secret of being content in every situation, whether plenty or want. Now, there, I, right there, I could do a lesson for like three different Sundays on how to be content. I just put two things in here that I've run into in my advising folks practice. Number one, I think, I think not having dent debt is a contentment and Paul orders us to in Romans 13 8 he says don't have any debt except to love one another I think that causes stress I think that causes marriage troubles I think that causes all kinds of problems if you'd like to work on getting out of debt there's a guy in our class Ken Thompson and he leads Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University it's starting back up again in February that's the best thing I've ever seen Best course I've ever seen for teaching folks how to systematically get out of debt. Number two, pay your taxes. Don't, don't you send me emails about this one. <laughs> Romans thirteen seven says, render to him all that is due, tax to tax, custom to custom, fear to fear, honor to honor. Jesus said the same thing and he said it twice. He said it in Luke 20 and he said it in Matthew 22. That's the render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Verse, you need to pay your taxes. I, I work with Mike Donaldson. He's in this class too. He's a CPA. Not too long ago, he had a client. Client owns a nice little business and they came in and they were panicked because the IRS was pulling money out of their bank account. Just whoosh, pulling money in the bank account. You know why? They hadn't paid their taxes since 2003. Man, you talk about stress, penalties, interest, taxes. Got to pay Mike to do six tax returns in a row. It's better to pay your taxes. Ron Blue says that if your tax return appeals in the Wall Street Journal, 
if your tax return appears in the Wall Street Journal, you should be able to make a defense of it. You know who Ron Blue is? He's the head of Kingdom Advisors. I'm part of that fine organization. Kingdom Advisors are financial planners who teach financial planning according to Christian principles. And Mike Riddle is in Kingdom Advisors also. He's the head of our study group. And Ron Blue built up an independent financial planning practice that's the seventh largest in the country. I mean, he, he advises Billy Graham's families and billionaires and all kinds of stuff. The most important is give. That's always the most important. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, God loves a cheerful giver. There's a really good book in our church library. It's a little dinky book, real little. And it was a bestseller. It's by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure Principle. You know that part in the Bible where it says we, come, we bring nothing into the world, we take nothing out with us? Well, that's true. We don't take anything with us, but you know what we can do? We can send it on ahead. That's the treasure principle. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 is the longest passage on giving in the Bible. That's why I wanted you to read it. Went all together in one place. And uh, he says all kinds of neat things in there. He says to the Corinthians, I know your eagerness to help, but I've been bragging to the Macedonians about it. He says, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. That's another three Sunday lesson on the blessings of giving to us that give. It's just, it's just such a, it's, it's such a blessing. And there's so many people who don't get in on God's blessing. Do you know, this has been true for years. Four out of 10 adults give nothing to churches. Nothing. First uh, Timothy six says, for as the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous and ready to share and store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold of that, which is truly life. We give because it's a blessing to us. God doesn't need our money. Do you really think God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills needs our money? See that guy lighting up the cigar with the dollar. If he wanted that guy's money, God could take his money, zap him like he did Ananias Sapphira, and he could leave a greasy spot where he was standing. He's God. That's not mine. I got that from Dave Ramsey. See that you excel in the grace of giving. That's in 2 Corinthians 8. Giving is like is a, is a life skill. It's like playing a piano. The more you do it, the better you get at it. I put the statue up of Sam Houston for, uh, cause I picking the examples. Sam Houston was baptized late in life. He came to Christ and was baptized in late in life. He was baptized by Rufus Burleson. I'm a Burleson I'm through my mom. And, um, the story goes that after he was baptized, he offered to pay half the yearly salary of the local minister. And the folks around him said, Oh, that's kind of overly generous. What are you doing that for him? Sam Houston said, when I was baptized, my pocketbook was baptized also. John Wesley. John Wesley says, money never stays with me. It would burn me if I did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it find its way into my heart. John Wesley had significant money from royalties, from books he wrote, and a few from songs he wrote with his brother Charles, who wrote all those famous hymns there's the picture debbie riddle that's cesaria that's the way you say it by the way people who speak english and live there say cesaria mark says caesarea because that's the way the romans said it well 
People who speak English say that. I have sent this picture to Mark half a dozen times and he will not put it into a lesson. So I put it into the lesson. <laughs> but I'm, now I'm not just getting back at Mark. There's a point to this. Do you know that could be the view from Paul's beach house? I'm not kidding. I'm not. Now, we're not for sure and stuff like that, but if you're looking at the picture like this way, over here is Herod's palace. He had an indoor swimming pool and he could swim out in the Mediterranean. And over here, a little bit to the right, so maybe that's not the exact angle. As you go out on the left-hand side is a room that they used to keep prisoners in. And it could have been that Felix kept him, Paul, in prison right there. Now, here's, here's the reason why I put this in here. This is what got me. Remember the thing about Solomon asking for wisdom and, and God gave him stuff he didn't ask for either, too, also? Paul was bringing the offering to Jerusalem. He got in trouble. The Jews are trying to kill him. He appeals to Caesar and, and sort of he gets put into protective custody by Felix, Right? Because Felix says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. This is some kind of religious argument. But he didn't want to take off the Jews, so he left him there for two years. And then Festus came in. Felix was evidently, evidently kind of a rough guy. And Festus was kind of a weasel. And he came in later on. And he didn't know what to do with Paul. And then King Agrippa from the north came in to visit. Big procession, big parade, all that stuff. So Festus is going, I need help with this. Like, this is guy Paul is creating a lot of fuss. Well, you'd kind of listen to the guy and see what we can do with him. And so Paul gets to testify before King Agrippa and he gives his testimony and he shares the gospel. Now, it is not in scripture. This is me guessing. But I, re- I wonder why he was in Caesarea for two years. Was it maybe because it, it, says, it says, let me say it this way. He, Agrippa says, are you trying to make me a Christian in such a short time? And so there's no evidence that Agrippa or Festus or Felix became Christians. But what about all the people that were standing around? What about the people in the court? What about all those folks? Did God get Paul put into prison so that he could share the gospel with people that he may not have been able to relate to when he's a dirty, dingy old guy going around the Mediterranean a few times setting up churches? Maybe so. Do you know what happened after this? Right there, from right there. I took that picture and that is in Israel. And I went with Mike and Debbie Riddle. And if you ever have the chance, I recommend that highly to see, to walk where Jesus walked. But from right there, he went to Rome and he was in prison there. Now, do you think Paul planned on that? I don't. I mean, his job was to go around the Mediterranean and start up churches. And then he went out of the Mediterranean again, start up some more churches, check on the other churches, start, make sure they're doing things right. Went around the Mediterranean again, took up the offering, delivered it to Jerusalem. I thought he kind of thought he was going to keep on doing that. But God had other things in mind, didn't he? Do you know what we got out of that imprisonment in Rome? We got, let's see, I got to think, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And it might have been kind of hard to write those if you're running around the Mediterranean with a bunch of Jews trying to kill you. So are our plans the best or are God's plans the best? All right. 
They said that you really like me and, and let me do this again if I let you out early. <laughs> Number one, point for home. God owns it all. If you get that part right, you get everything right. That's the key. First Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's the verse we're supposed to use for exercising and eating, right? And we're going to have to claim it and pray about it and ask God to forgive us for what we just did the past, the past week or so. But if God owns everything we have, if he owns us, he owns everything we have. Number two, let's study God's word to wisely deal with his money. Now, this verse isn't one of those 2,300 verses on money. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Live purposefully and worthily and accurately. Not as the unwise and witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people. Making the very most of the time, buying up each opportunity because the days are evil. Listen to this part. Therefore, do not be vague. Parenthesis have a budget. Do not be thoughtless, parenthesis, have a financial plan. And do not be foolish, put a ton of money on credit cards. But understanding and firmly grasping what the will of God is, what the will of the Lord is. I really like that one. Last one. Avoid the wrong attitude towards money. Did you really think I was going to leave out the most famous verse on money in the entire Bible? I saved the best for last. You know, people who don't even look at God's word know this one's around somewhere, but they say it wrong all the time. How do they say it? Money is the root of all evil. They get it wrong. They don't know that's in the Bible. I think Ben Franklin came up with it or, or something like that. But you know what it says before? This is, why, this is why I have trouble with these prosperity gospel preachers. You know, not everything they say is, is wrong. It isn't. It's our attitude towards that, towards riches, towards... It's not, you know, you, you, did you know you can get any question at Sunday school right if you just say it's your attitude? If you're, you can't get it in here right, but if, if, if you're sitting in a group, you can get any, any, Sunday, any, class, any question at Sunday school, you just say it's your attitude. Or if you say Jesus, just say, but you have to say it real like Jesus. They have to say it like that because Jesus is the answer. Um, listen to what Paul says. And this is one of the verses that I like to say against someone who says, yeah, you can, you can pray. And as long as you give God the credit, um, he wants you, you're the child of a King and he wants you to be rich. It starts at verse three. Instead of that money is the root of all evil. Money is, is in verse 10, but it starts in verse three. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is conceited and he understands nothing. They're doing all kinds of things, quarreling, constant frictions. This is between men of a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. And here it is. Who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But as for you, O man of God, flee, free, flee, flee from all this. 
and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the confession in the presence of many witnesses. I command you to do this without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, the one and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To him be honor and eternal glory and dominion. Amen. Look to Jesus. This money thing will take care of itself. I'm going to let you out early. Thank you for listening. I can't close us in prayer any better than that benediction right there. You're dismissed.